0: Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding." Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward Him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure. Because there is hope, you will look around and take your rest in security, you will lie down and none will make you afraid, many will court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail, all way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last.
1: Behold, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it, what you know I also know, I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians, all of you. On that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God, and speak deceitfully for Him? Will you show partiality toward Him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Let me have silence and I will speak. Let come what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hands though he slay me I will hope in him yet I will argue my face my ways to his face but a man dies and is laid low man breathes his last and where is he as waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again, till the heavens are no more, and he will not awake or be aroused out of his sleep. Oh that you would hide me in shield shield, that you would conceal me into your wrath pasts, that you would be that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag. And you would cover over my iniquity. But the mountain falls and crumbles away. And the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The turrets wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. You prevail forever against him and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and he does not know it. For they are are brought low and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body and he mourns only for himself. The word of the Lord. Be to God.
2: This summer, we're making our way through the book of Job. And in considering Job, it's, uh, it's important, it's helpful to keep in mind a few landmarks regarding the book as a whole as we make our way through the particular sections, right? Job begins, if you remember, Job is a righteous man, he's blameless. Uh, Even by God's own declaration, he's without sin. And then uh, God assembles the sons of God in a heavenly courtroom scene. And there he initiates the conversation about Job, right? God begins the focus uh, centering on Job by saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Satan then kind of raises the stakes and lays down the wager to be made. Does Job love you? Does he serve you for no reason? And his charge is essentially this, that Job is only obedient because of what you give him. It's your payment for his, uh, his righteousness that keeps him righteous. Take away the payment, take away the blessing, and he won't be righteous anymore. Then God permits that Job loses all of his possessions. His ten children are killed. And then in a second go-around, he allows uh, vicious sores to come upon Job's body. So that he's suffering, he relocates himself to the trash heap outside of the camp, and there he scrapes himself with pieces of ceramic pottery trying to find some relief. The end of chapter 2, three of Job's friends show up, uh, supposedly, as the text says, to give him sympathy and comfort, although we might question that as we're proceeding to consider their counsel. That's where they gather, and so begins a dialogue in which one of the friends will speak, and Job will respond. It goes through the three friends three different times, and today we're meeting for the first time the third friend, who is Zophar. Now, we've asked you to bring your Bibles for the sermon series uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that the book of Job is somewhat repetitive, and so to, to go through every verse would be very laborious. And so we're taking sections, we're taking uh, the speech of a friend and Job's response each in a week, and sometimes that just has too much text to put in the worship guide, too much text to read, and so if you have your Bible, you can jump around with us and take a sampling of what's occurring in that dialogue. Again, today we're considering Zophar and Job's uh, response to him. And in the midst of considering this, I'm going to make four exhortations to you this morning. Four basic challenges, but even in the midst of the four, they're all really tied together. And the one challenge to you, that you should make your case to God. That you need to you, uh, make your case to God. Now we'll unpack what that means, uh, but, and eventually we'll get there. Uh, but we'll start with the first exhortation, which is this. Don't think that you know God better than you actually do. Don't think that you know God better than you actually do. And for this, uh, we learn from the example of Zophar. If you look again at the beginning of chapter 11, beginning in uh, verse 2, Zophar says, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right, should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. Well, Zophar's opinion of Job and his words to this point are pretty clear, right? Uh, you have had a multitude of words. That multitude of words could be described as Babel. We're not going to consider them serious uh, because we actually think that they mock us in God's wisdom. Right? And this is why Zophar feels like he has to respond. Now, in responding, Zophar is going to appeal to the wisdom of God. Right? Now, you should get a feel. Zophar's being patronizing. He's angry. Right? He is mocking Job's words. Um, and keep in mind, you know, this is a guy who sat down to have, engage in sympathy and comfort. And he's like, yeah, you know, you're a windbag, Job. Right? Your words are babble. And now, uh, you know, let's appeal to God to hear some wisdom. And this is his direct appeal. He says uh, in verse 5, But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. Now, interestingly, having said that God is the one who needs to speak, right? And if in 7 and 8, Zophar will go on to say, uh, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? In other words, Zophar is saying, Uh, For real wisdom, we need God to show up and speak. God is unknowable. He's completely beyond us. Now, the irony of what Zophar is saying is that as soon as he says we need God to show up and speak, who speaks? Zophar does. He says, you know, since God isn't showing up and speaking, my voice will be adequate to communicate the wisdom of God. I'm going to share God's wisdom with you, Job, and it will be a critique and condemnation of what you have espoused as wisdom which is really just a joke, and I'm going to undress it right now. Now, interestingly, Zophar makes another uh, assertion, which really is highly problematic for Zophar's theological system. Now, remember, all three friends are firmly in the camp of what we might call retributive justice. And that notion is simply uh, born out of Deuteronomy. It's born out of Proverbs. It's a very common theme in the Old Testament canon. Up to this point in time, which is if you obey, you will be blessed. And if you disobey, you will be cursed. And this is how God uh, meets out very fairly what you deserve. If you're suffering, you've sinned. If you're doing well, you're righteous. This is his system. But notice what Zophar throws out at the end of verse 6 in chapter 11. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves with friends like this who needs enemies, right? In the midst of suffering, in the midst of lament, Zophar says, and you know what, Job? You haven't actually gotten what you deserve. God's withheld. You think it's bad, but if you actually got what you deserved, it would be much worse. Now, on what grounds can Zophar say that? Zophar exists in a system, and he's going to go on to explain a system in which God hands out justice exactly as it's deserved. But here he feels free to just poke at Job and say, you know, you, it could be a lot worse. You've not gotten what you have deserved. He's not exploring the mercy of God. You see, far, just without even apparently realizing it, has had to alter his theological system. It's not consistent. He wants to, and part of it is his anger at Job. Because you see, uh, if Job is right, and if Job has suffered for no reason then Zophar's theological system is completely out the window. Like the entire way he's ordered his life is no longer valid. It's undermined by Job, which is, you know, the virus that eats away at the code that Zophar and his friends have lived by. So there's a lot at stake for Zophar, which is one of the reasons that he's angry. <clears throat> Zophar has a picture of someone who believes that he speaks the wisdom of God. All three friends do. Now, the really challenging part about this and about the book of Job is that, in a sense, they do. Zophar and the three friends are simply rehearsing theology that is born out of Deuteronomy. They're saying, a, an, in essence, an orthodox position in which Job just won't fit. And it's in that presumption, their unwillingness to consider Job's story and to take it seriously that they can't think beyond their words. And so this will lead Job, if you look over to 13 in chapter 4, when Job gets his turn to speak uh, to the friends, "'As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleading of my lips.'" Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for Him? In other words, Job says, you don't speak truly of God. Your words are false and they're deceitful. And that is the exact charge that God Himself will take up toward the friends at the end of the book. That their words have not been accurate uh, in terms of representing Yahweh. You know, I said at the outset, I I couldn't figure out why, uh, why the friends... Are foreigners. And this is one of the mysterious, one of many mysterious aspects to the book of Job. But you have, uh, none of them are Israelites, right? Here in this particular context, Zophar as a Namatite. And so why are these individuals brought together to counsel Job about Israel's God? And what I think the author is actually saying is, uh, these people think they know God, but they don't really, and therefore they're not true Israelites, and he assigns them foreign identities to say, uh, you, you speak about something that you don't really know, that you're not really a participant in the covenant of. And it's, uh, it's a way of uh, including us in as the readers to understand, oh, you can talk like you know God, but that doesn't mean you know him. And that's the first challenge, is to look at the example of Zophar and to be warned. It's one thing to think you know God, it's another thing to know God. Well, what is the difference between the two? How do we move from uh, the error of one to the wisdom of another? We've already kind of hinted at the second exhortation, which is a challenge to you to think deeply about God and to think deeply about life. The failure of Job's three friends is to believe that Job is an anomaly, that by virtue of suffering and being cursed, even though he is righteous, he does not fit anything that has come before in the canon. And so by failing to say, well, what if this is true? What might it mean? What might we have to struggle with? They're unwilling to ask those questions. They're unwilling to think deeply about what's happening before them. And so they simply run into their theology. And in this way, their theology is a way to keep them distant both from God and from God's revelation as it's playing out in the life of Job. And it's because, uh, again, this is what Zophar has made angry, and we've already touched upon it. But if Job's story is true, that means that retribution theology doesn't work anymore, or it's not God's intention anymore. It's not the way that he's going to relate to his people. Uh, or a better way to put it is not necessarily that it's the entire upending of retribution theology but that life is more complicated, that it cannot entirely be explained by one system. Right? And so uh, this is the failure of the friends. And it's our failure when we think deeply about life and about people's stories and about God's work in this world and what is revealed. And then, Now, to be fair, we exist in a different place than those who lived when Job was written. Those who lived during the writing of Job live as the canon is still being formulated as God's progressive revelation is still being laid down. We live on the other side of the canon, and so not in the same place. But we could certainly exercise or aspire to a degree of humility in that if we were to think about the Copernican Revolution and the way in which we were very reluctant to acknowledge that, no, the sun does not revolve around the earth, but the earth revolves around the sun. Or if we were to think about in our own country's history, how you can identify any major denomination, including Presbyterianism, particularly Southern Presbyterianism. And you can identify major theologians who argued at length that slavery was God's intention and blessing to his people and a good provision to engage in. There are areas that we can look at and say, we we should have taken a step back and we should have thought more deeply. We should have been less eager to pronounce some judgment, and we should have wrestled with the complexity of God and life. We're talking about the omnipotent Creator and His engagement with our finiteness. That, of course, is going to be complicated. And if we rush to quick or easy answers, we're sometimes not going to think deeply in the way we need to, and we run the risk of being a Zophar, a Bildad, or an Eliphaz. In fact, I'll show you exactly how we run that risk uh, with the third exhortation. And this is that you uh, are to make your case before God. Now, Job is, is the paradigm here. The friends are critiqued at the end of the book, and Job is vindicated. And Job is uh, here, in chapter 13 particularly, um, is utterly confident in his case before God and makes, uh, has no reservation in making his case to God. Look with me at verses 13 through 18 of chapter 13. Let me have silence, and I will speak, and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now, that isn't simply a confession of um, my suffering's really bad, but I put all of my hope in God, per se, to come and to rescue me, right? Because where does Job go? Job's hope is in being uh, vindicated by having a fair trial against God. Immediately he goes on from there, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words and let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right, which can just as easily be translated, that second clause of verse 18, I know that I am in the right." right. Now this section is all legal language in Hebrew. Right? What Job envisions, what his hope is for salvation, is if God is truly fair and just, then he will show up and we will have a trial. And knowing that I have not done anything to warrant the suffering that has come upon me, I will be vindicated, and that is my hope. Job knows that he is in a mess that he did not create. This mess has been created by God's initiating the scenario with Satan. Satan. And so he calls upon a trial, an opportunity for him to vindicate himself uh, with God in a courtroom. Now, pretty bold words, right? You probably all have at some point and in some way shaken your fists at God, but have you ever said, God, come here, let's have a trial. What's gone on in this case is not something that is fair. You have made more of a mess of my life than I have made. Let's have a trial. I think I'm going to be vindicated over you. Right? That's pretty awkward even to think about, that we would say that to God, and yet I would argue that that, at least in some way, goes on in your heart, right, that you uh, are angry at God, that you have hatred towards God, not only by being in virtue of rebellion against Him, but many of you have suffered things that have affected your life, that may have even predisposed you to more sin. And there's part of you, if you're honest, would say, God, why did you permit this? Why did you let this happen so that I find my place, uh, my, myself in a place where it is harder to obey? You know, where were you? And you can th- we, can think of what, we could tell stories the rest of the day. You all know stories of people in your life. But we could think of someone, you know, a woman who, who grows up, and in uh, a home, and uh, there is no father figure, and she's abused, and she turns to men, and then has a life of kind of relying on men that are very harmful to her. Right? And you can say, well, uh, you know, if you're maybe meeting with her and she's waking up and drawing, Christ is drawing her near to Himself, and you say, great, you just need to put that away and repent, and now you can be whole in Christ. Okay. Bill Dad. That's helpful. Right? Do you hear how much that sounds like Job's friends? Or somebody who uh, early, early in life is in an accident and maybe before we knew as much as we do now about opioid addiction. And so is prescribed all kinds of painkillers because they're debilitated and become hooked and then get on heroin and their life spirals into utter destruction. Right? And you say, well, you just need to give that up. Repent and turn away and clean up. And you sound just like Eliphaz and just like Zophar. Right? And is there not a case where was God at the, minute, at the moment of that accident? Why was God not a shield? Why did he permit the story to go in a direction in which life now is much harder? Right? For those of you who have suffered and in, in growing up in broken homes or being abused, or suffering chronic illnesses. Right? These are things that occur, conditions in which we might say, you know, part of me would like to make a case. Part of me would like to say I would have had a lot better sh- shot at knowing you better, or serving you better, or knowing Christ, or being more righteous if these things had not proceeded. And God had not intervened, or because God had not intervened and done anything. And even if you can't identify something in your story, how about the story itself? What is the snake doing in the garden? Where is Gabriel arguing the other side? As Satan tempts our first parents to sin, where is the other side being presented saying, hey, don't do that. It's not a good idea his promises are empty that's not there right and at some level you have got to wrestle with the reality that Paul speaks of in Romans 8 that God has willingly subjected the creation to futility this is part of his intention it's part of the story that he is allowed to play out, and it's in the midst of this story that it is essential, and I think this is why Job has held out his paradigm, for you to make, to make your case. Now, probably plenty of you are pretty uncomfortable with that idea, so let, let's talk about it just a little bit more, and let's, let's lower the ante and just talk about a normal friendship, all right? and then come back and apply it to what, what we're talking about with God. So, uh, recently, I, I had a friend who, uh, who injured me. He offended me. He hurt me. He, uh, he said he would do something that was really important to me. He failed to do it, and then he didn't take his failure seriously. And so, uh, I, I'm wounded by that. Now, the question is, in my woundedness, because I believe that he has failed me, because I believe that I have a case against him, how am I going to handle that, that hurt? What should I do in relation to my friend? I think there are three basic options in terms of, you know, I mean, the one good option is I can go to him and say, hey, you really hurt me. I have a case to make against you. But that's not what we often do, and it's not what we often do with God. What my, what our, um, our preferences, uh, uh, our, our, our disposition often is to not actually deal with it. And there are a number of ways to do that. So, um, number one, I could decide that I'm just going to flee it, the situation. It's uncomfortable. There's conflict. You know what? We really don't need to be good friends. I'm going to pursue friendships in other places, and I'm going to direct my energy and time elsewhere. Okay? I'm just running away. Or I could say, not necessarily flee, I could have contempt. Right? I could have anger and say, uh, I hate that guy. He's, he's wronged me. He's in the wrong. And uh, you know what? Let me tell you how wrong he is. And uh, by berating him, I can make myself feel really good and important. I can make my case to whoever will listen and vindicate myself and say, oh, you know, it's hard to be me who has to deal with friends like that. Or so you've got fleeing, you've got contempt, or you could acquiesce and say uh, something like, yeah, it's not a big deal. It It didn't really bother me, and I don't really want to engage in conflict with my friend, nor do I want to move away from my friend, so I'm just going to pretend like everything's okay. Now, I would suggest to you that those three basic dispositions we use all the time with God. That in our anger and hurt and frustration, we don't go to God and say, God, I'm really hurt and You know, maybe I don't really have a case, but I feel like I have a case, and we need to have this conversation. I need to bring it to you because uh, this hurt is in my heart, and I don't know why you would allow what has happened in in my story to happen. And so I have to take this up with you, which is an acknowledgement that the relationship is actually valuable to you. Do you realize that if I choose fleeing or contempt or acquiescence, what am I doing? I'm saying, I don't really value this relationship. And I'm going to move away from it. Either I'm just going to run, or I'm going to, to mock it and hate it and judge, or I'm going to pretend that the relationship is there, but it's really not. Only by going to my friend, right, which I had to do, and I said, hey, you know, I was really disappointed. I expected you to come through here, and you didn't, and you let me down. Only by saying to that to him do I actually, am I vulnerable and honest, right? And I'm not pretending. All of these things involve image because we're pretending that something that is the case is not the case, right? And I communicate that I, this relationship is valued to me and I'm willing to work towards experiencing it and understanding it. And it's, the similarities are stark in our relationship with God. Our ability to choose to flee, to exercise contempt, to acquiesce and to not engage in real relationship. Job is an exemplar of something that is vastly different. I will make my case. Come and show up. God, let us have a trial. And I'm I'm right, you're not blameless like Job, right? But the point is that without being honest and straightforward with God in that fashion, you're moving away from relationship rather than toward relationship. All right, so it's actually, now some of you think, you still think, gosh, that sounds crazy and I don't know and that doesn't sound like pursuing relationship, but it is because even as Job makes his case and, and, and speaks his hurt, right, he also reveals that his real desire is not simply to be vindicated. And why would that be enough? What if, he, what if you did have the trial and, and God said, yep, you're right, and Job's vindicated Great, end of story. That's not what Job wants. Job wants something far deeper, far more significant. Look at 13, verses 20 through 24. Only grant me two things. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Job doesn't want to be vindicated nearly as so much as he wants God. Right? Do you see this? Withdraw your hand. Stop terrifying me. And then you know what? You can call and I will answer. Or I will call and you can answer. Either way, we can actually communicate because I don't live in a place of terror. Let's actually, Job longs for the fellowship to be restored that he had formerly with God. And this is his real hope. And that's why in fourteen thirteen through 17, if you flip over there, Job says, Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. Then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag. And you would cover over my iniquity. Well, that's odd. I thought the whole deal so far was that Job didn't have sin. That iniquity wasn't his problem. But suddenly here he says, Yeah, part of this problem is your wrath, and your wrath is somehow bound up with my iniquity and sin and must be dealt with. So Job presents this place that hasn't been seen in the canon up to this point, really. I mean, it's been alluded to, but Job, on the one hand, is saying, God, I am suffering and in a mess that you have made. Come give account. And at the same time, he's recognizing, and I am human, and part of our alienation has to be my sin. And I can't do anything about that. So I have to appeal to you to avert your wrath. You have to do something to put my sin away and hide my transgression and my iniquity. And you have this impossible dilemma, this impossible tension. How in the world will God stand in the dock? Right. How will God show up and be put on trial for the mess that has been made and at the same time cover up Job's sin? And you see this breathtaking spark that gives, get, gives birth to the hope, that gives birth to the vision that will only be fulfilled by the cross. Okay? This notion that God will say, yes. Yeah. You don't understand, Job, and you don't have the case that you think you do, but you've sought me. And you are in a mess that is something that I have permitted. It is not solely of your own making, but I will redeem it. And I will redeem it at great expense to myself. And at that same time, I will put away your sin and iniquity and hide it from you forever. But realizing that love of God in the mercy of the cross, only one only arrives at by will, being willing to make your case to him. If you choose to flee, or if you choose to exercise contempt, or if you choose to acquiesce, you hold him at arm's length, you don't engage real relationship, and you don't think you need that degree of love. It's only when you pour out your heart and realize that yes, this is you say. I want you to be on trial. I want you to. St- There's so much pain and hurt in my heart from my life, and I had no control over. And these are just things that happened to me. And you should be running a better world. That God can say yes. I know you think that, but realize that the solution. To this dilemma is the cross. And in that, do you not know that I love you? It's in that love that we go to the table this morning. Let's give thanks together. Our gracious God, your ways are infinitely beyond and above ours. And such kindness and condescension that you show to frail humanity is difficult for us to comprehend. But we thank you that you would give us a story in which you vindicate the person who, who cries out and lays his heart before you and seeks, uh, seeks to be redressed for the wrong that he experiences. And uh, the degree to which Job is right is somewhat set on the side uh, because you honor him and vindicate him at the end. So would you so encourage us by your spirit to be honest with you and to be real? Would your spirit be upon us so that we do not flee nor do we exercise contempt toward you nor do we acquiesce to you in pretended relationship but instead we, we really run to you and we make our case and in making that very case, case we meet at Christ at the cross. So would you invite us there now even as we partake of the nourishment that you have offered to us. Fill us up with the blood and body of Christ in such a way. Uh, that we, we are equipped to be far more real with you and as a result um, to become far more human than we are at this moment. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.